from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report. We are on the road from Fromm Farmland in Colby, Kansas, one of the hosts for Farm Journal Field Days this week. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. He's a farmer with a 30-year track record of zero employee turnover. We make more money as a grain elevator than we do as a farm. We'll take you for a tour of From Farmland, turning the Napa Valley of corn into a whiskey wonderland. It's a taste of whiskey acres. Iowa and Minnesota hammered with high power winds this week. We'll show you where and in John's world. Walmart, Amazon, and rural America. Now for the news, farmers in Iowa are again assessing the damage after portions of the state were hit with high winds this week. The winds reportedly clocked at 100 miles per hour at one point northeast of Waterloo. And in some cases, the damage to crops is already evident, as you can see in this video from north of Tripoli area with corn already down. The storm not as destructive as last year's derecho, but Agritalk's Chip Flory told me driving through damage, it's questionable how much of the corn crop in that area, as well as the soybeans, will be able to stand back up. It laid some of these cornfields just absolutely flat, but as far as scope goes, no, 700 and some miles of that derecho where there was damage from extreme to light, you just can't compare it to that. But if you're in the middle of it, yeah. Absolutely, it's the same kind of damage. And it's not just corn. Soybeans in the northeast part of the state are also impacted. I can't remember seeing bean fields get laid as flat as some of the fields that I saw over around the Fairbank, Iowa area. And then up along Highway 3, just east of the Wapsipinican River, bean fields just laid flat, stripped of all their leaves. I don't know what's going to be the outcome of those fields, but it's going to be really difficult. So there's damage to corn and to soybeans. It's I'm curious to know just how far east it goes. The damage even spilling over into Minnesota where that started. Zach Johnson, known as Millennial Farmer on social media, he shared this picture of one of his fields located in the central part of Minnesota. It was impacted by high winds and he says the worst of the damage was about one to two miles wide around his house with fields already suffering from drought. That wind took advantage of crops that were already struggling to hang on. There's also damage to Poet ethanol plant in Fairbanks, Iowa this week and damage to some grain bins. While sections of the country have seen recent rain, several parts of the country growing corn and soybeans still remain relatively dry. And that is continuing to impact condition ratings. USDA now putting corn condition in the 18 states surveyed at 60% good to excellent. That's down another two percentage points from last week. There's also declines in soybean conditions with the crop now rated 56% good to excellent. That's down one percentage point from last week. That comes on the heels of condition ratings that declined the week prior as well. But it is a different story when it comes to the nation's cotton crop. 71% of the cotton crop across the country is rated good to excellent. That's up 4% from last week. Only 6% is rated poor to very poor. USDA's report also shows 79% of the cotton crop is setting bowls across the country. That is well ahead of last year. The number one production state for cotton, which is Texas, with 72% of the cotton setting bowls. 
Well, one report says China appears to be on track to reach its phase one trade requirement. It comes after the country purchased an additional $2 billion worth of U.S. agricultural goods in June. Here you see the breakdown, the latest phase one tracker from the Peterson Institute of International Economics. It shows as of June, China had met 69% of its overall goal on imports. Now, through June of this year, China's purchases of covered ag products had reached 90% of the year-to-date target, and August has been a big month so far for U.S. soybeans for China. The country buying another 132,000 metric tons on Tuesday. That brings the total buys so far this month to more than 1.3 million metric tons. Well, USDA has made updates and additions to the second round of the coronavirus food assistance program. The biggest revisions will help contract producers of pork, poultry and other eligible livestock, as well as specialty crop producers. Grass seed growers are also added to the list is now eligible for CFAP too. For contract growers, it means that more help for producers of broilers, pullets, layers, chickens, eggs, turkeys, as well as hogs and pigs. Contract grower payments were originally based on a comparison of eligible revenue for 2019 and 2020. But now with these changes, contract producers can now use eligible revenue from 2018. The agency has set a deadline of October 12th for producers to sign up or make modifications to existing applications. Well, it may cost more for farmers to dry corn this fall. Liquid propane prices are trending higher due to supply and demand issues. And the Oil Price Information Service says prices are likely to stay higher because the overseas demand is strong enough. Also to blame, LP stocks in the U.S. have dropped recently. As of last week, the total stocks in the country were at more than 66 million barrels. That compares with 89 million barrels a year ago. That's a 35% reduction in stocks just year over year. Well, how much does it cost to rent cropland this year? According to the National Agricultural Statistics Service, the average price is $141 per acre. That number is $2 higher than last year and up $7 from five years ago. This map will give you an idea when it comes to prices. Darker blue, that represents higher prices, and you can see that in California, Hawaii, as well as Arizona. In California, it works out to $331 an acre. Iowa coming in at $233, and Illinois, $227 per acre. Well, it's a mild 100 degrees here in Colby, Kansas this week. That high heat hitting many of you, but does it stick around into Labor Day? We'll take a look at the forecast with Matt Engelbrecht next. U.S. Farm Report on the Road from Farm Journal Field Days is brought to you by presenting sponsor Pivot Bio Proven 40. Predictable, productive, weatherproof. Turn to a better nitrogen with Pivot Bio Proven 40. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht. Well, Matt, some high heat definitely in western Kansas this week, but I know many of our viewers saw the same this week. Now it's worth noting that uh, the drought monitor you see behind me here was released on Thursday. So the rain that we get over the next couple of days will be included when it's re-released uh, on Thursday. Updates coming out every Thursday. A couple of things I wanted to point out. Uh, one being a portion of the Midwest, including uh, central Indiana, uh, seeing a dry to moderate drought. And then this is actually a little bit better, the Dakotas, than we've had the past couple of weeks. We're back up into the extreme. It's still very dry uh, through Minnesota and the Dakotas. Uh, but hopefully we'll start to see some relief in the way of rainfall coming through 
over the next couple of days and the next few weeks. Uh, the, why, the reason I say that is if we look at the jet stream coming up for a Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, our troughs, uh, the digging lines from the north to the south are getting a little bit stronger. And we typically anticipate that as we go uh, towards the tail end of summer and into fall. So by the time we get into September, we get a little bit more cooler and drier air digging down to the south and making its way farther to the south than we've had the past couple of days or the last couple of weeks where it's been more zonal. Now, if we want the cooler air or if we want some rain and some moisture, uh, we want that energy going north to south, not just west to east. So there's the jet stream coming up on Wednesday and see these white lines digging a little bit farther to the south. Ridge of high pressure still expected to build over a good portion of the United States Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Now with uh, parts of Texas, Louisiana, uh, which was dealing with again that tropical moisture right in behind it. High pressure building in, clearing the skies out, but also temperatures are going up as well. Here's a look at what we expect uh, in terms of the surface map Monday into Tuesday and Wednesday. Low pressure system associated cold front as well. A little bit stronger than the ones we've seen the past couple of days and last couple of weeks with high pressure back behind it. So if we're going to get any kind of rain through portions of uh, the, the plains, or even up into you know, the Canadian uh, United States border. It's going to take a low pressure system and this cold front that's going to be moving through. Short stint with some warmer air. There's that high pressure building in behind that tropical system. It is going to be hot and muggy uh, through portions of the south, including Florida, Georgia, even into Mississippi and Louisiana, uh, Thursday and Friday into the weekend. Speaking of which, here's a look at the 30 day temps above average where you have the yellow with about normal high temps and low temps you know, through the Midwest and also the plains below normal temperatures as we're continuing to deal with some tropical moisture. Again, that's what that blue is indicating for portions of Louisiana. As for uh, this normal category, the average highs this time of year are going to continue to go down. We've already been through the hottest part of the year, so we're going to be tailing down that average high uh, as we go through the next couple of weeks uh, for the Midwest and also the Plains. Above normal over here on the West Coast, as again, that uh, trailing trough, that uh, trailing cold front is set to take, uh, uh, take hold uh, through ports parts of the Plains rather than the West Coast. Well, our commodity prices making a comeback. We'll talk about just that coming up next as we continue our show from Farm Journal Field Days here in Colby, Kansas. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. We'll hear from From Farmland here in Colby, Kansas. Uh, crop conditions got some rain last night, Arlen, in this area. A little too late for some of the crops, but we're fresh off of Pro Farmer Crop Tour. We have a better gauge of crop conditions around the country. Yet the market this week seen some strength. What is at play right now when it comes to these commodity markets? Well, I think overall the Pro Farmer Crop Tour found what was pretty much expected. Uh, I think Nebraska came in a little bit higher than what I expected based on the ratings. You did look at a few more irrigated fields this year than, than you did last year, but still at 50% irrigated, that's lower than what the, the total is for Nebraska at about 58%. So maybe Nebraska's even bigger. But overall, I think the states that were supposed to have good yields did, and the states that were supposed to have poor yields did. And it really didn't answer any questions for the market other than that. Now it comes down to filling. I don't think the market really understands the importance of having favorable conditions for filling and getting that seed size. 
but as narrow as the margin for error is this year, that's really going to matter. A few bushels one way or the other for corn or a bushel one way or the other for soybeans could have major price implications in the months ahead. We just saw rain in this area of western Kansas really needed a drink. I mean, when I was here about a month ago, really optimistic about the irrigated corn picture. You know, give us an, a snapshot of this area. What are expectations for production this year? Yep, um, been highly variable in the, the rains have just been extremely spotty, um, but we're very fortunate to get the rain that we've had. We're all very familiar with drought and how frustrating that can be. Um, Dakota's definitely uh, struggling with that now, but we're very fortunate to have the rain. We've got some haves and have-nots and a lot of variability out there. Yeah, we'll get into a little bit more about uh, some of the price momentum that we saw this week. But Tanner, when you look at the feed side of the equation and the question mark in some areas, just if they are going to have enough feed and at what price, uh, you know, what are you telling some of your livestock customers right now who are looking at, should I be locking in some of this feed? Well, that's a big question mark all around the country uh, with feed prices going up in some parts of the country. Uh, if you have feed, uh, you're pretty lucky. Uh, I think it depends upon your business model, too. If you're buying feed off of the open market, then you're off, you know, you've got quite a bit of risk there. If you're growing it yourself, though, you're going to be a little bit more insulated from that. And so uh, for those folks in livestock uh, and dairy, they're going to be better off if they've got uh, their own feed in-house. Uh, you know, longer term here, there's, uh, you know, there's an issue of how how long does this persist in the future, right? I mean, it's uh, livestock and milk prices uh, may not be terrible. The problem is on the feed side, and that's what's really uh, compressing margins. And uh, going forward through the remainder of 2021 into 2022, we're looking at an extended period here of high feed prices, not just grain and oil seeds, but we're also talking about hay. I know out in California where it's very dry, uh, you've got premium alfalfa prices over $300 a ton. Uh, it is really hard to pencil a profit, especially if you're when you're in dairy, uh, when you've got uh, class three milk prices around 1750, uh, and you've got hay prices at 300, you've got corn where it's at. Uh, it's a really difficult situation. And so now the conversation turns to how do you manage that margin risk? And do you really plan for expansion right now, if that was your plan uh, going forward? Arlen, when we talk about costs, recently we saw an Iowa land sale, $19,000 an acre, and talked to a land expert that said, listen, if commodity prices hold strong, we could see another bull run this fall. So when you look at commodity prices, it kind of felt like we turned a corner this week in a way. Prices continued with some momentum. Do you think there's enough at play now that that will continue as we move through the fall months? I really do, because there's so much money in the system. And as long as we continue to have so much monetary stimulus as well as fiscal stimulus, it's not just going to be uh, inflation in the commodity sector that pumps money into land, but it's going to be outside money coming into the land as well, keeping those land prices elevated and costs for everything elevated, frankly. Uh, inflation's not just transitory. Yeah, Brady, when you look at that, I mean, what is your advice for some of these producers looking at managing risk right now heading into this key harvest time frame? Absolutely, yep. Um, you know, inputs, very, we're coming into a year where you bought inputs right, probably a lot of people, and margins are very attractive for, for 21 crops, but 22 is kind of scary. And the cost of these inputs with fertilizer at nine-year highs, um, you're paying two to three times more for everything that you're buying now. And 550 corn, five, $5 corn, I don't know if that works quite as well as, as 550 does in today's environment. Well, Arlen, you mentioned inflation, so we need to take a break. But Tanner, we want to talk about inflation and the impact that it could have on our cow herd size this year as well. So we need to take a break, but we'll be back with more U.S. Farm Report in just a moment. 
Well, rural America has seen its fair share of changes, but there are no signs of that slowing down. Here's John Phipps. There are a handful of singular changes, all of them could be called advances, that have fundamentally changed life in rural America during my adult life. By rural America, I mean, of course, my rural America, which I help others to understand as 22 miles to the nearest McDonald's. Now, one of these would be satellite TV or country cable. Removing the restriction to a few, as in three, local channels delivered over a considerable distance to unreliable antennas was jaw-dropping. Similarly, Cell phones, especially smartphones, immediately and irrevocably changed our ways of connecting to others. And suddenly, others could mean just about anybody, anywhere. But perhaps the most life-altering development for farm families, and particularly our small communities, has been the nearly total reshaping of retailing. Two institutions epitomize this change, Walmart and Amazon. Walmart's sophisticated algorithms and explosive growth soon shuttered local groceries, hardware, and clothing stores. Walmart not only could deliver the same goods cheaper than the competition, it was willing to absorb several years of low profits or even losses to achieve that dominant position. The recent announcement that Amazon had replaced Walmart as the largest retailer in the U.S. shows a striking strategy similarity, patience. Here's a chart of Amazon net income since 1994. Now, two things to notice about this chart. First, the astonishingly long time it took for Amazon to grow revenue, and how much slower the net increase, the bottom line, profits, increased. Partly that's due to the chart scale. Revenue is now close to $300 billion. If we zoom in on profits, you get a better idea. In the last two years, it has generated over $20 billion in profits. And remember that revenue is still growing rapidly, so this profit increase could just be beginning. Indeed, the pandemic may have been a breakthrough event for Amazon's growth. It's easy to understand why our town squares and main streets are no longer and will never be retail centers, although some services like hairdressing and insurance seem to survive. But the lesson I took away from these graphs was modern business requires more patience than most farmers have or can afford. I'll talk more about that in the future. Thanks, John. Well, we need to take a quick break and the machinery repeat has tractor tails this week. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're gonna hop in the time machine and we're gonna check out a Mogul 816 that was built in the early 1900s. It's about 1917. Uh, Mogul was bought out by International Harvester Company, so it's the pre-International Harvester tractor. Uh, they made moguls and then they turned them into internationals after quite a few years. We uh, went through everything that we needed to to get it running. We just basically tore the engine down. It was all here and all complete. The toughest thing was the cylinder head. Um, it had been froze up and broke and great big chunks broke out of the cylinder head. Uh, we had to build new valves. Uh, you don't go downtown and buy any parts for this thing. You got to build them. It takes some power to turn that flywheel. It's got pretty good compression. And if you'd go through all the 
the right choke and uh, set the decompression and do everything right, it doesn't start too bad. But it takes a lot of horsepower to get that flywheel turning. But it's still got the original tags on it and serial number and, and everything. It's kind of neat. It was quite an experience starting it up for the first time because it backfired a few times. We didn't have the timing just right. It sounded like a shotgun and we were, didn't know whether to hit the deck or not. Well, it's a farm that had a track record for three decades of zero employee turnover. When we come back, we'll introduce you to the host farm of Farm Journal Field Days from Farmland. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, from farmland here in Colby, Kansas, was gracious enough to host us for Farm Journal Field Days this week. And it's a farmer that knows how to attract and keep quality employees. And it's often that details do not get overlooked. Driving into from farmland in Colby, Kansas, the scenery says it all. I never really saw myself winding up as a farmer. Sign after sign, white building dotted along the property. It's a farm that's all business. And this man, Lon Fromm, who never considered himself a farm kid, is now at the helm of the farm and has been since 1986 when his father died unexpectedly. Because I wasn't, my grandfather wasn't around, my father wasn't around, it wasn't, we've always done it this way, we've always done it that way. I got to figure out my own way. And that's exactly what Fromm did. With 12 full-time employees as well as seasonal help, Fromm says decisions on the farm are a team effort. They come up with the solutions. The guys will go and get the bids. We'll talk about it and decide whether we go with it or not. From fuel to fertilizer, every detail counts. What was a bottleneck with fueling up at harvest? The team came up with the idea to have six nozzles so all combines can fill up simultaneously. And in the crop health building, efficiency is also on full display. We set up all of our chemical, our bulk back there, our water back there, and all these bulk containers behind us so that we can pump it straight on the truck without having to get on there. But just across from the crop health building sets a grain bin system that's a pinnacle piece of what From Farmland does. And that one system represents 50 years of growth. The technology that's in the bins really helps us are the fan control systems that monitor the moisture and the ambient temperature and we put in parameters of goals for the moisture that we want. In total, the system features four pits, four overhead loadouts and three grain dryers that have the capacity to handle 10,000 bushels per hour with the ability to also handle different moistures of the same crop, even sorting by test weight. I would say that uh, I make more money being a grain elevator than I do being a farm. I've had my lender tell me that before, that um, just by being able to, we get to keep about 50 cents just because it goes across the scale right there. The investments from makes aren't just in infrastructure, but also his employees. If you'll notice, everyone is on salary. No one works by the hour. We all get together for an hour in the morning and eat together. And uh, we're kind of like family share everything, anything. Uh, it is all work related, but it's also, um, you know, just personal related. And I think that is a lot of what drives the culture here. From the large table to the war room, plans are made and ideation is welcome. 
I think that's one of Lund's uh, best attributes is he's, he's always willing to change and embrace change. So, I, uh, yeah, it's very, very transparent on that level. An attractive place to work as from also helps employees invest in their future. Nine of us own our own farm ground. I think that has changed people's mindset to where, you know, now it's also, you know, their crop that's on the line. Instead of chasing the highest yields, from farmland focuses on what they can't control through efficiency and the ability to always be willing to change and learn. Well, there was also some excitement here in Colby, Kansas this week as Thursday we hosted the Farm on Benefit concert for FFA. We did so at Lawn's Farm and as you can see, there was definitely excitement in the crowd as FFA members as well as friends, family and farmers joined us for the event and it's all to benefit FFA. So join us September 20th as Clinton and I host our Farm on Benefit concert as a way to give back to National FFA. And to get started, you can actually go ahead and text hashtag farm on to 20222 as a way to already give back. All right, we'll pick back up our marketing discussion from right here at From Farmland when we come back. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Okay, Arlen mentioned inflation. And when you look at inflation and the debate that we're having right now on how long can this continue, you know, we heard some pretty bold forecasts. Danner, it was kind of in the, I think, the, the early spring that if inflation continues, we could see things like $42 wheat. I mean, just these huge numbers. And we talked about that. But what impact could inflation have then on our cow herd here in the U.S.? That's a great question, Tyne, and we're already starting to see the impacts of that right now. The last couple of uh, USDA re milk reports have shown just a slight decrease, uh, leveling off the slight decrease in the cow herd. Uh, that's uh, notable because we've seen a constant uh, increase in the number of cows in the U.S., uh, the highest number of cows since 1994. And people were wondering, when is this going to slow down or stop? And now we're starting to see those inflation pressures that Arlen was talking about catching up, you know, the price of steel. The price of aluminum, concrete, copper, lumber. You, if you want to build a new barn, a new parlor, a new warehouse, and you'll build anything new, it's going to cost you. And then there's the labor side of things. If you're going to expand, you've got to find the workers. Well, can you do that right now? That's pretty hard to find uh, workers, and then what are you going to pay them? And then um, all the other input costs uh, as well are going up, and so that's causing a lot of farmers to go back and sharpen their pencils and recalculate. Do I expand right now, or should, do I put these plans on hold? And that's why we think going forward, we've probably seen what we're calling peak cow. We've, we're finally seeing that leveling off of the herd and probably going to start seeing that uh, tapering off going forward. If we do see that, what, how does that adjust kind of the feed side of the equation on feed demand when it comes to um, our, our grains here? And how big of a piece of a puzzle is China going to continue to be here in 2021 as we move into 2022, Arlen? I'm probably more encouraged now about the demand from China than I was a couple of weeks ago. Our biggest concern was with the liquidation of the hog herd, uh, the narrow margins there. We saw crush margins really go into the red earlier this year. Uh, and the soybean purchases start to slow. Uh, but we've really started to pick up the crush pace now. Um, we figured that China would start needing our soybeans come October um, and then start buying corn later in the year again as well. Ocean freight rates are the big problem right now on corn. They've got some feed wheat to feed. 
now to kind of buy them some time waiting for those ocean freight rates to come down. But I think the bean imports are going to be a little stronger. That has an implications for the corn as well. So overall, I'm feeling better about the Chinese situation. I think the margins for feeding hogs there have been just good enough for the commercial operations that continue to expand. And so their industry is going from the small individual farms to more commercialized, which means more feed demand, more corn, more soy meal, et cetera. And so I think we're going to come out of that slump a little quicker than what I thought, and I feel good about it. Well, uh, Brady, you know, in, in USDA's latest report, there were some question marks about some revisions that USDA made to the demand side of that equation. And so do you think we will continue to see some of those adjustments based on what Arlen's talking about? Yeah, it's good to see China. The flash sales come in and get reported the last few weeks with China buying some beans. It's been a long time since they've, they've come in and bought corn from the U.S., and that's something to pay attention to going into this fall. Um, when are they going to come back to the market with U.S. corn purchases? Um, who's who's going to supply supply these these crops to to them as well? Um, Ukraine's got a better crop this year. I think there's a lot of eyes on South American production this fall. What Argentina and Brazil produce? Um, we're in the bushel business, and everybody's goal is to raise as many bushels as possible to feed that demand. Uh, Tanner, to wrap things up on the dairy side of things, you know, last year uh, when we saw some of these USDA COVID relief programs that really helped prop up milk prices, what's at play right now that is either going to help or hinder milk prices as we close out 2021? Well, the dairy donation program is new, uh, is new money that's going to be helpful. And uh, dairy margin coverage program uh, money there is going to be helpful as well. Uh, there are some caps on that uh, on farm size. Uh, but, you know, when you have these, uh, these kind of margins for what we're talking about uh, caused by these high feed prices, uh, any help is uh, going to be uh, welcomed. Uh, and so I think going forward, though, I mean, there's, you know, the question is, um, you know, can we move more cheese, more butter uh, in Q4? And uh, is the government going to be buying some of those products, cheese and butter, off the market? And is that going to be supporting prices? And I think uh, there's, some, there's uh, some potential there for that. Arlen, real quick, uh, Reuters had a story this week saying that China's hog herd was going to be reduced about 14 percent is what they're saying. Uh, a headline that hit kind of caught some eyeballs. Are they just not caught up on current herd size or do you think that we are going to see China continue to reduce those pig numbers? Well, when you see stuff come out of China from Bloomberg, it's fed right from the Chinese government. Reuters does a little bit of their private investigation, in Ch but they're just still not caught up. Frankly, the numbers that we see on the ground with our people there is their production still at 20% below pre-ASF levels, uh, starting to rebuild once again. ASF is still very real, but with the commercialization, biosecurity, they're starting to deal with it. So 20% below, not 14%, or as the government says, just a few percentage below. All right, thank you all for being here. We really appreciate it. Let's take a break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. It's an area of Illinois known for its corn. And now, thanks to one farm family, it's known for its whiskey. And they helped us kick off Farm Journal Field Days this week. A farm that planted roots in 1941. We're one of the few estate distilleries in the world. Is where you'll still find the Walter family. I would say the last 10 years have been fairly dramatic. The last decade, the farm has been driven by change. We've hit upon something that's unique in the uh, distilling industry. As this father searched for ways to bring his son, an attorney at the time, back to the family farm. This was a, a quest of mine for a number of years before Jamie came back to the farm. When Jamie came back to the farm, we 
solidified that idea and brought it to life. The idea was this. Kind of settled on this concept of using some of the corn that we grow here to make bourbon uh, and other types of whiskey as well. A simple concept, but one these corn seed growers knew they could pursue while adding a new flavor. We're nothing in DeKalb County if not the Napa Valley of corn. DeKalb County, Illinois is known for its corn and thanks to the Walters, it's now known for its whiskey. One of the kind of the founding tenants with Whiskey Acres uh, versus most of the competition out there is that if we don't grow it, we don't make it. Whiskey, rye, to even corned vodka. It was an untapped market. I think it's been a, a good diversification. We've certainly moved away from uh, price taking to price making. Whiskey Acres Venture started with a goal to diversify. And in the process, built a brand. The ability to look at varieties uh, of grain that go into the spirits has been uh, uh, well received by the the distilling industry. Whiskey Acres production spans over a couple thousand acres, growth that's been metered by a sprawling Chicago land. One of the things that we wanted to do was to be able to still be profitable on fewer acres. And in order to do that, we were going to have to come up with a higher value product. As Chicago crawled closer, 75% of our visitors drive an hour or more to get here. And about 50% are from Chicago. Whiskey Acres poured a new plant. Seven years later, here we are, and the distillery is the larger operation. And, you know, we never saw that coming, at least not at that pace. And in five years, Whiskey Acres could grow even more. At the current pace of the distillery growth, we'll be really humming along. Uh, we're actually looking for opportunities right now in the industry to acquire uh, other, other facilities and locations. And that may or may not happen. If the opportunity's right, we might grow that way. Um, but we'll continue to uh, put a lot of product out in the market. Well, today, Whiskey Acres actually has product at 600 different stores across Illinois. And you can find out more about Whiskey Acres' story by attending Farm Journal Field Days virtually at farmjournalfielddays.com. All right, when we come back, John Phipps. Chinese ownership feedback. Standing out here in the middle of Kansas, this topic is pretty fitting. It's China and U.S. farmland. Here's John Phipps. My comments about Chinese ownership of ag land prompted this email from H. Hansen in Hill County, Montana. Your information is behind the times and is definitely leaving something out. There are a couple brothers from Swift Current, Saskatchewan, Canada, that formed a Montana corporation approximately five years ago. Since that time, they bought 16,000 acres next to my farm near Haver, Montana, and leased a few thousand more. Last summer, they bought 64,000 acres near Hardin, Montana, and are looking for more. They bought an irrigated farm in the Phoenix area. This was all done by paying 20% over the going rate for land that was already overvalued. The general consensus is they are backed by Chinese investors. I don't know for sure where their money is coming from, but they are in their 30s and have been expanding that fast in Canada. The math doesn't work. Well, thanks and send me an address. The ERS numbers for ownership that I gave are of December 2020, and I noted at the time that Canadians by far own more U.S. ag land than other foreigners. Now, looking at the math, 
The most recent land values for Montana would mean 16,000 acres would be in the neighbor of $40 million. This is a large but not unthinkable amount for ag lending. There are 58 million agriculture acres in Montana, second only to Texas. 100,000 total acres for this operation would still be less than about 0.2% of Montana's farms and ranches. As for being backed by Chinese investors, private investment is just that, private. If the Chinese were to buy Farmer Max shares on the New York Stock Exchange, I guess they're backing me as well. Money flows around the world like water, and little of it has country of origin labeling. If you don't know for sure, it reinforces my belief that the Chinese are about to become the equivalent to the Arabs in the 70s or the Japanese in the 80s. We thought they were going to buy up everything, especially commercial real estate like skyscrapers. Now they did buy some stuff, they sold some of it later during recessions, and became what they were to begin with, old news. The Chinese are simply the easiest to suspect for large investments. I tried, however, to put those supposedly large tracts in context by pointing out we have a huge amount of farmland in the U.S., 2.2 billion with a B acres. I also learned that land is only overvalued when you are buying, not when you're selling, and that things always look bigger the closer they are. Thanks, John. Well, coming up next, it's a farm in the Mississippi Delta with Canadian roots. We'll share their story when we come back. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Yetter Farm Equipment, profitable solutions for production ag since 1930. Visit yetterco.com to check out our combine roller attachment, the Stalk Devastator. Well, the Mississippi Delta is full of farms that have been in the same farm family for generations. But in the pursuit to prosper, one Canadian farm family decided to move south. And in doing so, they found a land of opportunity. Planted in the middle of fields of cotton, rice, corn, and soybean country, you'll find some rare roots. So back in the late 70s, uh, property values had got very expensive where I lived in southwestern Ontario, just east of Detroit, Michigan. A Canadian by birth, Willard Jack set out on an untraditional path with his dad and brother, all with the plan to find land of opportunity. This was big cotton country, a little bit of rice growing, not a lot of soybeans, uh, not a lot of irrigation, but there was a lot of potential to irrigate. And we thought there was a lot of potential to farm here. A Canadian who knew nothing about cotton, rice, or how to grow crops in the South, Willard sought help through the local extension agent. Working from the ground up, Willard built a business, and today, Silent Shade Planting Company is still grounded in family. Family is very important to us. Fact of the matter is, today, my wife is driving the combine, shelling corn while we're down here talking. Uh, we've worked with my son, my daughter, and, and my wife, and myself, and my daughter-in-law, and, and it's, it's, that's what there is to it. That's very, very important to us. And a decade ago, Willard sought support from his family even more. So life's always playing tricks on you. So about 15 years, 16 years ago, the doctor told me I was going to die with cancer. He was wrong, thank goodness. But with the news, sprouted a transition plan. And uh, Jeremy come back and I said, look, don't know how long I'm going to be here, whatever, but if you're going to be successful, you need to start sooner than later. 
And within five years, his son Jeremy took over the day-to-day -day operations of Silent Shade Planting Company. We've got a lot of different things going on every day. And I think that's the diversity of our operation being cotton, corn, soybeans, rice. From a variety of crops that require irrigation to aerial fertilizer application, even moving dirt and managing their own trunking company. The management piece of silent shade is key. We have a board. We sit down all the family members that are stockholders that are working here. Once a month, we sit down for one hour. Line by line, plan by plan, it's all discussed in the open. With the help of technology and a true team employed on this land, continued improvement sprouts with every step. Now the great thing is we can have all this good information instantly of what we're looking at, how we're doing it. Success that germinates by prioritizing their farm family and how they care for this land, both of which continue to be some of life's greatest gifts. It's my job to whether the next generation that comes back to the operation, if it's family, if it's non-family, we set them up or if it's another operation that takes over that we've done everything we can to advance agriculture and the farmland that we're working on. And don't forget, you can hear more of all of these stories at FarmJournalFieldDays.com. That virtual experience still going on right now. Well, that does it for this weekend of U.S. Farm Report. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us again next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.